they say that one of the things that made Francis Schaeffer a great pastor in the 20th century was that he was able to not only put his finger on the pulse of the word, that is, he could really get to the heart of the text, but he could also get to the pulse of the culture around him. That is part of why he spoke so effectively uh, is God by the Spirit used him to not only teach the word, but he was able to bring the word to bear on the culture around him. In other words, we, we want to be knowledgeable about what our Lord's word says, but we also want to be diagnosing the culture that we are in. We want to be able to articulate where the particular idols or where the particular perversions of God design, God's design take place around us that we might proclaim his word into the, our context rightly. That's a justification for a long quote I'm going to read in a few minutes uh, because I think it will help you hopefully put on some lens, uh, a gospel lens to maybe areas where we have uh, maybe missed or perverted God's design. And so let me start with one scholar. Uh, her name is Kristen Dumas, and she made waves in 2020, right in the middle of COVID, with her book, Jesus and John Wayne. In the introduction of her book, she describes evangelical Christians as those who believe, quote, the strength of the nation depended on a properly ordered patriarchal home. Patriarchal is typically used insultingly today uh, by cultural commentators to demean the Christian idea that by God's design, men are meant to lead their families and in the local church. I do think there are all sorts of distortions of the patriarchy that we would do well to separate ourselves from. However, I think Dumez's diagnosis of evangelicals is wrong because many Christian churches and homes are not patriarchal. They are what another scholar has called matrilineal. And that literally just breaks down into the line of the mother. The mother uh, determines the cultural line. So in the same year as Dumez wrote, Anthony Bradley wrote an essay titled American evangelicalism isn't patriarchal, and it's not feminized, it's matrilineal. Well, what in the world does that mean? In patriarchal societies, not only are men the ones building the lines of cultural influence, they also hold the public offices. In a matriarchy, which is different from matrilineal, in a matriarchy, writes Bradley, women hold the highest levels of authority. That is, they'll, you'll see them in public office, uh, and they, uh, they determine the lines of social influence. In matrilineal societies, men may hold an office, that is, the men maintain their positions uh, in public, but it is women who ultimately determine or control the operations of community life. In a matrilineal society, men are the public face, but it is the women who largely organize and pass down cultural development. Hence, matrilineal, the, the, the women, though not in public office, are those determining and developing culture. And pay attention to what the men do. What the men do is they are moved to the side in a supportive role. They typically make the money or they keep the structures or the buildings uh, doing the grunt work to support all of the cultural uh, influence uh, mostly guided by women. 
Now, let me give a caveat real quickly. Um, this is not a complaint about the labor of women and influencing culture. Uh, women are, are good, and it is a good thing that they are involved culturally and laboring to pass on culture. Uh, this is more a, a diagnosis of the men. So what does this have to do with evangelical Christianity? Uh, this is why I want to give you a long quote, uh, and I want it to hopefully help frame your view of a good bit of churches in our country today. Matrilineality, this idea that men hold public office, but women are doing all the cultural influence, explains so much about how evangelical churches brainstorm and staff and think about their programming. Entire churches are structured to function adjacent to and to complement matrilineal norms. Many matrilineal churches falsely believe themselves to be true complementarian churches. And what he's saying there is they'll say, well, because we have male pastors and elders, we are complementarian, complementarian. And he's saying that's not the case. In reality... Many churches are simply a complementarian facade living in a matrilineal reality. It's why the, quote, felt needs in a church are often what they are. And so then he's going to answer, how did we get here? What, what, what made this happen in a lot of churches? Suburbanation, non-denominationalism, and the reliance on new social networks at church and school to care for children significantly increased the burden on women to serve as the primary sustainers of cultural life. That is, women at the center doing all of this work, the needs of the public schools, the needs of the churches, has put so much weights upon the women and their labors. Uh, in other words, without women and mothers, family life, school, this isn't a perfect example, but think about it. When it becomes Christmas time, how involved are the dads usually in getting ready for Christmas? Moms typically are the ones out doing all the shopping, and they're here, and here's what you got me for Christmas, right, honey? Um, that's not a perfect example, but that's that's kind of a you, you see women are are giving so much uh, effort and time to organizing uh, ceremony in Western homes uh, that ask any school principal or pastor today about the role of women versus men in sustaining their churches in Christian schools. As men's roles shifted more outside of the home, they go and you know make make a lot of the money. Uh, they're they're too busy to show up to the school functions, so a lot of times the, the moms are there. Women naturally needed people to impact their children. Well, who did that? Well, in matrilineal societies, women would enlist the help of platonically connected men, often brothers or uncles and grandfathers, to have an impact on their children's lives. In suburban churches, that role was professionalized in the office of the youth pastor, the pastor of youth and families, and so on. In today's matrilineal America, especially in the suburbs, children's ministry, youth ministry, family ministry, and other post-World War II church staff titles specifically exist to serve and assist mothers in passing down the essentials of the faith. Ask any children's or youth ministry staff what would happen if all the mothers pulled out of helping them run their ministries versus the fathers. Children's ministry and youth ministry exist because communities and churches are primarily matrilineal. Those are programs help to alleviate 
all of the labor that our women are doing. So in summary, while men may be often in positions of authority in Western evangelical churches, men are often largely disengaged from discipling others or discipling even their own families. It is the women who have taken up the task of coordinating relationships and discipleship of kids, each one another, and home. Men largely have moved to providing the funding or the structures or simply just maintaining the buildings to make it all possible. Think about this for a moment. Can you imagine a church where all the men lead their wives daily by praying with them? Or who open and close their households each day with time in the word and song and prayer for family worship? Who also make deliberate time during their week not merely to teach their kids a sport, but meet with their children over the word. Maybe take them to coffee or disciple them in some way or ice cream. I understand kids aren't going to drink coffee. Some won't. Where such men are present, there is largely not a craving in those churches to organize niche programs because the men are leading as they should. And the women find themselves joyfully partnering with them instead of saying, he's just too busy. He won't pray. He won't lead us spiritually. Church, hire someone to do, and they, they don't usually couch it in that terms, but that need is there because so many fathers and men are not leading. Now, why does all this matter? Isn't this a distraction from the gospel? Let me remind you of the thesis of 1 Timothy from chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. It's on your sermon handout. You'll see it there. Paul tells Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. In other words, 1 Timothy is God's revealed will for how churches should structure themselves. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to look to the, the creatives. We don't have to look to the, the CEOs. Instead, we can look to God's word. What a gift our Lord is giving us in his word. In our passage today, in chapter 2, we are given comments uh, about gender roles, and it is our Lord saying this. You, you have our uh, big idea summarized there, that the rightly ordered church advances gospel witness by upholding God's natural order. In Paul's mind, there's a connection. If we want to reach the nations, according to verse 7, well, we ought to uphold God's design for men and women. For the sake of gospel advancement, our desire should be to uphold God's natural created order for men and women. Now, what does this have to do with a sermon series about elders and deacons? Crossroads, I commend to you, appoint men who walk in this order themselves, uh, who structure their own lives and households uh, around these orders, uh, and secondly... Given that this is an unpopular view in our culture, evaluate if those you are nominating for elders and deacons will stand here or will they capitulate uh, to the culture around them. Let's look at the passage together, starting at verses 8 to 10. Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, 
Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Here we often have what's called the household codes, and you see them throughout Paul's letters, Peter's letters. But not only are there household codes here, uh, these codes are for the house of God. In other words, Paul is still speaking about the church's public ordering, not simply who we are to be at home. He's talking about how the church ought to order itself publicly, because this sort of gathering is considered a public event. The, The outside world may be watching. And we've called men, we've seen in verse 8, we have a call to men there. And then we have in verses 9 to 15, Paul's turn to focus on women for a moment. And we spent last week reflecting on chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, primarily on the priority of prayer for men. And I only want to make two additional comments this morning. I want you to notice uh, the word or the two words there. Where does Paul desire prayer to take place? And you guys can say that every place. This is a reference back to Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. Listen to the prophecy from Malachi. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense or prayers will be offered in my name. Now, you remember last week in verses 3 to 6, we saw that we are now in the age where God's salvation and Christ's mediating work is for people from every tribe and tongue. In Jesus Christ, God is calling us, those who are members not of ethnic Israel, but of nations around the world, to turn from our sin and come to Him because Jesus has provided a sacrifice for our sins. But the benefit of that is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's that we have been reunited to the shepherd and guardian of our soul. Practically, men, what does that mean when when the men in the church get that, according to Paul here? They pray in every place. They are prompted to pray. So, brothers, we are the nations. We are now able in every place to call on the name of the Lord. And this is our instruction, men. Obviously, women as well pray. But Paul specifically here is saying, men, you want to lead, you need to pray. Let us normalize then praying in our relationships. Let us pray corporately. Let us gather to our church prayer meetings. Let us pray individually. Let's lead our wives in prayer. Let's lead each other in prayer with members of the church. Don't be afraid to say, hey, brother or sister, can I pray for you right now about this thing? Pray for the nations that you might reach your neighbors or your co-workers. Will we claim to have a more fuller revelation from God in the New Testament and yet not avail ourselves to the access that we have in Jesus Christ? Brothers, lead this church to pray. Let us be a praying church. But I also want to draw your attention to the manner in which we are to pray. They are to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. In the Old Testament, the condition of the hands was a symbol of one's moral standing, right? You know the song, Give Us Clean Hands. 
We're not praying for hand sanitizer. We are praying that we would live morally upright lives. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So, brothers, what Paul is saying to us is that men pray and be godly. Pray and don't disrupt the church with quarreling about things that aren't that important. Do not be dividing the church. Keep Christ at the center and lead the congregation to pray for the nations. Men, that's what you are here uh, to help us do. Lead the church in this manner. Pray, live upright lives, uh, and fight for the unity of the church and the advancement of the gospel. So, what does this say for our deacons, as an example? How do you identify a faithful deacon? Well, look at what he does with his hands. And while I, it is, uh, we have some very gifted and skilled deacons in terms of what they can build with their hands... What Paul is saying here is focus on their hands not chiefly in how productive they are, but in how morally faithful to God they are. Does he have any idols in his heart? Is he controlled by a fear of man rather than what God has said? Can you trust his words? Does he stir up division or anxiety, or does he help insulate and unite the church? Is he a man who contends for what God has revealed? The same goes for elders as well. In one sense, what verse 8 is saying is that the church does not belong to its men. So when we talk about male leadership, we are not saying that the church belongs to men. It is the Lord's. And men should set a culture of leading the church to follow God's will, not their own. Our leadership then is meant to preserve and behold what God has said, not other ideas or things that we think are wise. Verses 9 and 10, you'll notice the connection. They begin with the word likewise, which means Paul is not departing from this larger topic of how the church should order itself. He's talked about godliness in the life of the church, uh, and specifically here in verse 8, he spoke about men, but now he shifts Not from the theme of godliness, but in the application. He now speaks to women. Here's what it means, women, to participate in the corporate church and and how to bring about godliness and order in the congregation. You'll notice in verses 9 to 10, it's controlled by the verb to adorn or dress oneself. That is, in a real way, women captivated by God and filled with the Spirit ought to care about how they dress but the word adorn here, in terms of dressing, does, is not simply reduced to material clothes, though it certainly includes that. It is similar to the word hands in verse 8. It means that women are to be clothed modestly and in moral uprightness. That is, the definition of modesty is far bigger than external adornment. You want to dress well for church, ladies? Spend time dressing your heart according to the will of God. What are our attitudes in our hearts? What are the idols that are controlling us? How are we treating the other women in our church or our own children or our husbands or our own friends or others? 
Are we leading them in gossip or slander? Are we, are we following the Lord? Uh, the mark of, of godly women is not merely outward adornment. It is what's happening in my heart. Am I being pleasing to the Lord? Ultimately knowing that what makes us pleasing is Christ's righteousness. But then our desire now is to see Christ formed in us. And what Paul is addressing here in chapter 2 is there's the emergence of what some scholars have called the new Roman woman. There was in ancient Rome a feminist movement that had cast off the more traditional roles of the Greek woman. And the Roman woman was marked by more of an independence, uh, possibly linked also to the goddess Artemis, but furthered, that, that is this this. In this church, in, in Ephesus, this embracing of this new Roman woman was encouraged also by the false teachers. These teachers of the law who were forbidding marriage. And because they were forbidding marriage, the women were more prone to live and embrace uh, this new Roman woman uh, that was causing a lot of civil disorder. So in their context, uh, the, the, these women I, were emerged, they were identifying, this, the dress here was linking them to this idea of this new Roman woman. So to be clear here, having a hairstyle or having jewelry is not in of itself inherently wrong. In the culture, Paul is trying to draw a line between this sort of immodest, ostentatious uh, Roman woman and a sort of biblical womanhood that comes from caring about an internal adornment uh, and thus not using our outward dress to draw attention to ourselves. In the context, these commands about clothes are to separate the women in Ephesus from identifying with the Roman woman. And the dress was problematic, number one, by virtue of the attention it brought to oneself. Uh, either sexually or even in some sort of elitist classism, right? You see, costly attire is one of the things he, he speaks against there. He's saying you don't need to separate yourselves from the other women in the church. Uh, you don't need to stand out or use your clothes as competition. Uh, dress modestly, he says. But number two, in particular, his concern was the case of public worship, that, that women in the public worship would not be disruptive or disordering or that they would not encourage division in some way, similar to Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to give maybe an example of how you might see this take place in the 21st century. When I began going to church in my 20s, I remember noticing early on that uh, a lot of churches in worship use that time uh, as almost a kind of a, a talent show. Uh, and there's nothing wrong. We should use our talents. We should sing to the Lord. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying we can't uh, sing or anything like that. But it, but it almost seemed in some churches it had become a culture of a performance mentality, uh, uh, making it about the solos and the particularly gifted people and when you emphasize that in certain ways, the worship can be less about helping people see the Lord through us, and it can become an occasion by which we want the people to see us. 
while this isn't identical to what's going on in Ephesus, I think the clothes uh, and, and the issues going on are similar in that way. Ladies, your participation in the local church uh, should, should not distract from encouraging the congregation to behold the Lord. And I praise the Lord, uh, I don't know any women here who do that. We have a, a great group of ladies, very godly, and I'm thankful for that. Now, to be clear, Paul is not calling you uh, to abandon how you look, uh, but similar to men, he's saying to women, uh, if you look at verse 10 at the end there, clothe yourselves in moral uprightness. And what does he mean by that at verse 10? Wear good works. And I don't want to absolutize any particular application, but a great passage to, to think about what, is, what might the Lord be calling me to do in clothing myself in good works. We can go to Titus uh, chapter 2. Uh, Titus, Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 3 to 5. It says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may, be, may not be reviled. So you might ask yourself, how am I contributing to uh, the worship in my church? Well, don't measure so much how you externally adorn yourselves. Measure yourselves by whether or not you're discipling other women in the congregation. Me measure yourself by whether or not you are slandering in your talk. Measure yourself by whether or not you are getting uncontrollably drunk. Measure yourself by what you teach. Are you teaching what is good to other women or to children? Help, help younger women to, to have a vision for the home and for the, whatever industry they have. Help them learn to be self-controlled and pure. Help them to love their own families and their husbands and children. This is some applications of what it might look like to clothe yourself in good works. So sisters, let that be your heart when you think of whether or not God is pleased with how we worship. He's not looking at you going, well, you didn't wear enough earrings today, or you didn't put on enough makeup. He's calling you to clothe yourselves in good deeds. Now, the rest of this passage will be even, if that was controversial, the rest will be even more controversial. So let's look at verses 11 to 12. 11 to 12 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness... I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, we need to pay attention to the word quiet here. You see how it opens and closes, right? Verse 11, she is to learn quietly. Verse 12, remain quiet. But I want you to look back up at verse 2 and see Paul has already used this noun. In verse 2, Paul instructs the men to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Now you can see already that there, Paul is not saying that you need to go through your whole life without ever uttering a word. The idea here, by mentioning quiet participation with all submission, is not that a woman can ever speak, uh, is not that a woman cannot uh, be a part of the corporate gathering, but just as the church should be concerned for its public life and civil order, a woman's posture in worship is there to learn instead of drawing attention to themselves. That is, the godly woman's heart does not want to turn worship into a theater, theater for her own display, 
She is there, like the godly men and the training of children, to be eager to learn from God's word. One very clear application from from this section, you'll notice there uh, with verse 11 that there is an imperative. You, You can't tell in the English, but in verse 11, this is the strongest form of command, and it's an imperative. And I want you to see what it's saying. It says, first of all, let a woman learn. In other words, ladies, you deep and rich theology is for you. That, that isn't something to be relegated to a few men in the church. Ladies, you are called, just like your brothers in the Lord, to love God with all your mind. Study deeply. Look at Greek. Look at Hebrew. Don't be afraid of those things. Rich theology is for you. And one of the ways I tried to, we, we reflected on applying this, and we realized as a staff this is a congregation blessed very much with women who love their Bibles. So if I could apply this, the one thing we want to say is, wonderful job. The women here love the Lord. And that shows itself in the way you open your Bibles and the way you talk about the Word and you meet with one another and you dig into the Word. So first, I want to commend you for your love and reverence for the Word because it is a great gift to this congregation. Secondly, though, for for those of you ladies who do not, I want to encourage you that one of God's greatest blessings for you is that you learn His Word. Psalm 1, blessed is the man or woman who doesn't walk or sit in the seat of scoffers, but instead meditates on God's law day and night. But let me say also very specifically... Ladies, elders are not just your elder or your husband's elders. We are also your elders and pastors. In other words, ladies, you're not a burden to us. We love to shepherd you in the word. We love to hear what you're learning in the word. We love to encourage you. So if you haven't, I want to encourage you to give yourselves to knowing your elders, uh, that they might share the word with you. In the same way that you might seek a doctor's counsel to maintain your physical health, ladies, I want to encourage you to consider your elders, uh, them knowing your soul spiritually uh, in appropriate ways uh, and in the context if you are married with your husbands, um, but entrust your souls to your elders as well. But men, let me say to you, how are we doing in this area in terms of learning the word? Men, are we... Uh, also modeling a love for God's word? Have we accepted the matrilineal culture around us, assuming that our job is just to maintain and protect the building? Have we let those good things, necessary things, replace learning the word with the congregation? Men, I urge you, learn from the women in this church. Attend worship. Attend Sunday school. Wednesday nights. Don't get caught always out in the hallways when we could be learning the word together. The second command is in verse 12, and it comes with two prohibitions. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Paul says, first of all, I do not permit, and he gives the two applications. He does not permit a woman to teach. He does not permit a woman to exercise authority authority. And what he's saying here is that in the corporate gathering over men in the congregation, 
a woman is not to teach. The idea here is not that women cannot teach. We just saw in Titus 2 where women were commended to teach the younger women. We see in 2 Timothy that it was uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother who had taught him the faith. We see in the book of Acts, Priscilla, along with Aquila, privately teach Apollos. The prohibition here is that in the church's public life, as well as its order, a woman is not to hold the office or function of a pastor or elder. Now, the kicker in this discussion is, is Paul speaking merely to a cultural issue, or does this also apply universally? Number one, in some sense, it certainly is here because of a cultural concern. That is, part of the reason Paul is writing about it is he's drawing a fence uh, between the church and what was happening culturally in Ephesus. So it isn't unfair or wrong uh, to suggest that Paul is addressing a cultural issue. But the reason we know that this is not simply a cultural concern is because Paul grounds this prohibition in verse 13 in God's original design for man and woman. That is, as Paul gives the cultural application, the application itself flows out of an objective moral order in the universe, namely how God made male and female. In other words, while this applied to Ephesus, this also applies to churches today. And so the question is, why? Why should we uphold verse 12? This is where we're going to look at these last few verses, verses 13 to 15. I'll read it. The reason is for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, Paul is giving three reasons here for why we should maintain verse 12 today, why, why women should not be elders or pastors. The first reason is because Adam was formed, and it's the word protos, right, where you get the word prototype, the first of its kind. Adam was formed protos. Adam was formed first. In other words, what Paul is saying is the first reason is because the order in which God created man and woman is deliberate. Adam being created first is the grounds for leadership in God's house. This is not a statement of a discrepancy in worth. Remember, Jesus delights to submit himself to the Father, yet he is equal with the Father. Hierarchy does not equal inferiority or inequality. It simply is order. Adam was created first, and thus male elders are the model after Adam's headship in the garden. So what Paul is saying in verse 13, brothers and sisters, is that we of all people should realize there is a moral fabric to the universe. Just have as walls have rebar in them, hopefully, uh, so the universe around us, its design, male and female, have a moral rebar within them that we would do well to pay attention to. That is, there is something good about male headship tied to the creation. His instruction 
Paul's instruction is grounded in faith that Genesis 2 is God's design, and it's good. And so we should follow it in the church. The second reason is in verse 14. The second reason is that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is not a statement that women are somehow less intelligent or that men are smarter. Paul's point is to Ephesus. Now remember, what was going on is that the false teachers were perverting the first five books of the Bible. That's how their false teaching was spreading. And Paul says, first of all, you remember, in the Torah, God made Adam first. The second thing the Torah shows, as he's showing here, was that transgression came about when the woman led. That is, God gave a particular order to creation, and when the first sin took place, or when it came about, it was in the context of a disorder of that design. Adam sat back. Eve took the initiative, and the human race fell. Adam should have led her. He should have kept the command to keep the garden, which included protecting God's design for men and women. In other words, brothers and sisters, if you are one who trusts in Jesus Christ, the very Torah that points us to Jesus explains the origins of humanity. And in that origin story and understanding of the fall of man, it testifies to us that abandoning God's order is not good for us. It's not good for human beings. So church, we of all people should find significance in the fact that Eve's transgression took place when men stopped leading. And this is so important to articulate because our culture would have you believe that feminism and even further erasing all gender distinctions is the way to progress and freedom. But let me ask you this. Has erasing this order been good for women? Just ask the ladies who are now losing to biological men in their women's sports. Has that upheld their womanhood? The doctors making all sorts of money off of augmenting young girls through their surgeries because now women can be men or men can become women, whatever men conceive of that to be is the only thing the church can do in the face of such destruction of women be simply to follow the culture in the name of equality? Church, was God a fool in Genesis 2? I wonder if you see how this conversation relates back to verse 7. In verse 7, Paul is speaking of his calling to teach the nations. And what Paul is saying here is that church... The creative designs of God are preserving that in the church is actually what helps our public witness. If we abandon God's design for male and female, we will fail in our teaching of the nations. God's wisdom is good for mankind. And I wonder if you see, if you choose doctrinal minimalism you will inevitably harm the nations you are trying to witness to. How can we articulate salvation if we cannot tell the world what a man and what a woman is? 
If we want to maintain a faithful, effective public witness church, we do so by upholding God's design for male and female. We profess that our God was wise. We do not advance the gospel when we, when we distrust the moral fabric that God created. But what is this silliness in verse 15? She is to be saved through childbearing. Does that mean that every woman needs to have a baby in order to be saved? I want you to pay attention to the pronouns there. You notice verse 15, it starts with the singular. And then it moves towards the end of the verse. In the second half, it moves to the plural, if they continue. In other words, I think the first part of the verse is a continuation on the singular focus of Eve. That is, here in verse 15, it's not saying every woman is going to be saved by having a baby. It's still speaking about Eve. She will be saved through childbirth. And then Paul takes up the application to the church to commend God's design for women. Now here's what's happening here. Verses 13 to 14 have just made these points. Adam was made first by God's design. That should ground how we think about men and women in the church. Secondly, when Eve went first, that design was disordered, and we all became transgressors. So Paul is saying, think, church. What is the way that Eve will find salvation? Let me remind you of Genesis 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all of the living. Why, after bringing on the curse of death, do we get this positive description of Eve, that she's going to be mother of all the living? Well, what is the promise that we're given in the curse of the serpent? Genesis 3.15, an offspring will be born to the woman who will crush the serpent. That is, from Eve would come the line of men from whom the Savior of the world would be born. In other words, the creation story tells us by Eve's return to the role of male and female, that is the means by which God's Savior was brought forth into the world. Eve will be saved by Christ... And that came about because she gave herself to bearing the line of promise. In other words, brothers and sisters, the very means by which our God entered his creation was through woman. Women are a gift as God designed them. And it does not mean you're any less if you're a woman who's never had a baby. The point is, women, you matter in the design of God. That order isn't a demotion. And Paul is saying, remember we were made this way. Remember what happened when we fell. But remember also the salvation that came to the world that saved Eve was because she began to bear children. And in Genesis, that was with Cain and Abel. But then that line was picked up with Seth. The Lord gave Seth to Eve. And so Paul ends verse 15 by saying, ladies... Faith, love, and holiness with self-control in the church means embrace the order by which God made you. That is God's wisdom to you. He does not command this because he hates you. Embracing God's design is freedom for both men and women. For some of you ladies, 
That means having children. For all of this, that means not encouraging women to see children as a burden. We don't make comments, oh, bless your heart for having so many kids. Children are a gift. For others of you, that means giving yourself to train up women to be content with biblical womanhood. For all of us, or for for all the ladies, uh, that means being eager, also for the men, for the leadership of your pastors, knowing them, being shepherded by them. For those of you who are single, it may mean looking for a man who will lead you faithfully, but it also means just trusting the Lord in your singleness. For some, it may mean repent of trying to control your husband. At the end of the day, what this passage means is this. The church is the place that loves God's design for male and female. And in this letter, reflecting God's creative order is part of upholding God's truth to the world. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 15, we are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And part of upholding the gospel to the nations means we're not ashamed of God's good design for male and female. So as Paul says in verse 7, he is here to teach the nations. Therefore, verse 8, we pray, we exhibit godly lives. Therefore, verse 10, women are eager for public works. Such good works include upholding the family as it partners in the local church. So brothers and sisters, do we want to evangelize the nations? Honor God's design for men and women. And nominate elders and deacons who will lead us in doing so. Let's pray.